You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. This I know, that God is for me. In God, I trust. In God, whose word I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise. In that God, I trust. Father, would you help us this morning to turn away from ourselves? Would you help us to look full in the face of your Son, Jesus Christ? Lord, we need your help as we open up this word. You know the biases that we come in to this room with. You know the unbelief of our hearts. And so, Father, we do pray once more that you would conquer our unbelief and establish the sovereignty of your Son, Jesus Christ, in the hearts of each of us. Rule in our hearts, Lord Jesus. We ask in your precious name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but as the father of four kiddos... I have a bucket list of places that I want to take my kids before they're grown and out of the house. And one of the places that is toward the top of my list right now is the Grand Canyon, right? I mean, how could it not be? 277 miles long, 18 miles wide, 6,000 feet deep. If you've ever wanted to feel your own smallness, In light of God's grandeur, look no further than the Grand Canyon. But as stunning and as gorgeous as this natural wonder is, it's no surprise that it's also fraught with danger. Every year, an average of 12 people die at the Grand Canyon for reasons ranging from injury at the bottom of the canyon to inexperience to sheer stupidity and selfies. And so to help the general populace stay safe, the park rangers make a point uh, of posting warning signs in key areas all around the park. Okay, here's a sampling of a few of those warning signs. Danger, use caution near the edge. Thank you. Here's another one. Watch out for reptiles, rattlesnakes, lizards, spiders, centipedes, and scorpions. Didn't know that. Or, caution, sheer cliff, control your children and your pets. And my personal favorite, are you fit and adventurous? You fit the profile of the three most recent deaths here at the Grand Canyon. I start this way this morning because in our passage in Galatians, Paul is dealing with a people on the edge. At the time of writing, the Christians in Galatia are close to taking the plunge into law-keeping. They are beginning to believe that in order to be complete, in order to be fully righteous before their God and Father, they must begin to keep the Jewish law to keep Sabbaths and religious festivals and ultimately be circumcised. 
And so Paul comes along and he says, oh, foolish Galatians, don't you see the cliff? Don't you see that you're headed toward your death at this very moment? And so in our passage this morning, Paul comes along and he posts three warning signs that the Galatians must heed. Each of these signs comes in the way of a reminder. This forms our outline here this morning. First, in verse 8, remember who you used to be. Second, in verses 9 through 11, remember who you are now. And third, in verses 12 through 20, remember who spoke God's word to you. Let's jump right in in verse 8. Remember who you used to be. It says this, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Paul reminds the Galatians here of who they used to be. He says, there was a day when you did not know God. And at first, that doesn't seem like an overly significant statement. But when we realize that for Paul, when we, rather, when we realize what Paul is doing here is making a statement not just of past ignorance, but of the fact that they did not have a relationship with God. Because when Paul talks about knowing God or not knowing God, this goes far deeper than mere information. To know someone is a statement about relationship. For Paul, knowing someone is to be intimately acquainted with them, to be in their good graces, to be the recipients of their blessings. That's what Paul means by know. And so the opposite of this is also true. To not know God is not just a reference to someone's ignorance of God or lack of information. No, to not know God is to be cut off from God and his promises. So much so that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul says that God will inflict on those who do not know him and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ a fiery judgment. To not know God is a very serious state to be in. It's a place of impending wrath. And Paul says to the Galatians, that's who you once were. You remember that? Do you remember the time that you were cut off from God when you were among those among whom Jesus will say in the last day, I never knew you. Depart from me. That's who you were, Galatians. But that's not all that Paul says here in verse one or rather in point one. Look at the second half of verse eight. Paul says, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Paul reminds the Galatians here, here that when it came to their worship and their devotion and their service, they couldn't claim neutrality because they were in fact intimately acquainted with those who were not gods at all. It's well known that those in the Greco-Roman world where Galatia is situated were enmeshed in the worship of false gods. 
worshiping a whole pantheon of gods. The Galatians were no exception to this. They were willing participants in the rituals and the festivals and the sacrifices of the false pagan gods. But Paul says an interesting phrase here. He says, not that they really are gods at all. They're they're so-called gods. It's not as if they have a real existence. We know that there is no God but one, and his name is Yahweh. But this begs the question, doesn't it? How can you be a slave to a God who has no real existence? I think to answer that question, we have to trace a biblical understanding of these false gods back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Because here in 1 Corinthians 10, we find that there is in fact a demonic realm that undergirds and permeates the idol worship that the Galatians took part in. So Paul says here that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons. Paul says, that's who you were. Not only did you not know God, you were in fact slaves to demons. You were enslaved to the spiritual forces of darkness over this present age. To quote from Ephesians chapter two, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And if we're listening here, we should begin to see that this is a portrait, not just of the Galatians, but a portrait of each of us. We too were once slaves. We too were once morally incapable of choosing God over our sin. Although we believed that we could stop sinning any time that we liked, isn't it interesting that we never did. Isn't it interesting that we returned again and again to our favorite vices, even when we knew it was killing us? Even when we knew that people warned us not to go back to these things, we were enslaved to our sin. And underneath all of this were demonic forces, right? We were slaves. Paul says, Take a good look at who you used to be, lest you fall off this cliff. And this brings us to point two. Remember who you are now. Verse nine. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. Paul begins by pointing them to their present day reality. He says, you now have come to know God. And again, this isn't just knowing some facts about God. He's reminding them of their intimate relationship with the God of the universe. This is a knowing that harkens back to verse six of Galatians chapter four. This is is a knowing that says you are sons and God has sent the spirit of his sons into our hearts saying, Abba, Father. 
Like, that's who you are, Galatians. And that's who we are, brothers and sisters, for everyone who has surrendered their life to Christ. You are a son. Like, do you remember that? Do you remember that you are now a daughter because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished? Like, you know God. You don't just know things about him. You have a relationship with him. You're no longer cut off from the promises because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished on your behalf. Make no mistake about it. God the Father delights in you. He's not neutral towards you. You know God. That's what he's saying this morning to the Galatians. That's what we need to be reminded of here this morning. And I love this because right after Paul reminds the Galatians of their relationship with God, he sort of pauses to correct himself, gathers himself. He says, but now that you have come to know God or rather be known by him. Did you catch that? He says, just to clarify for a moment, you do know that in your relationship with the Almighty, it was him that initiated the relationship. You know that, right? In in man's relationship with the Almighty, he's the initiator and we're the responders every single time. As one commentator put it, humans do indeed come to know God, but they do so only because... God first determines to know them in Christ. And it's against this glorious backdrop that Paul asks the first pointed question of this passage. He says, now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by him, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. Okay, Galatians, I've reminded you who you used to be, and I've reminded you of who you are now. How in the world can you turn back to who you used to be? How can you turn back to taking part in the worship of demons? How can you revert back to paganism? Don't you see how insane that is, Galatians? But here's the thing. If we've been paying attention at all so far in the book of Galatians, we should be scratching our heads a little bit at this point. The careful reader should be asking at this point, who is considering a return to paganism, Paul? You see that here? The temptation for those in Galatia was not to go back to pagan temples, but to go to the Jewish synagogue. Not to sacrifice to Jupiter, but to keep kosher, to observe the Sabbath and to be circumcised. And verse 10 confirms this. Paul says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. In other words, they were beginning to keep Jewish Sabbaths and Jewish annual festivals and Jewish high holy days, all in an effort to bring their Christian faith to completion. And yet what Paul seems to be saying here is that this kind of observance somehow will bring them back into slavery of paganism. What's going on here? I think to answer this question, 
we need to step back for just a moment and look at Paul's understanding of the law in Galatians. And in particular, we need to remember the temporary function of the law. One of the words that shows up again and again in Galatians chapter 3 in particular is the word until. Did you guys see that? Listen for this as Paul tells the purpose of the law. Galatians 3, 19. Why then the law? Well, what's the purpose of it? Why did, why did God give it? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Or again, Galatians 3, 23 and 24. Listen to this. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. We need to see that although the law was good and right for Israel to follow, its purpose was temporary. It was meant to keep the people of God under lock and key until Christ came. The law was meant to both remind the people of God of their sin and to restrain the people of God in their sin. But brothers and sisters, the law was never meant to be a long-term solution to the problem of sin. It was a holding pen that kept the people of God temporarily confined until the time when God would send his son. Think about it like this. Most of us in this room have had the country of Ukraine on our hearts and in our prayers with great frequency over the last two weeks. And one of the things that the Ukrainians are thankful for, like never before, are the underground spaces below their major cities. You see pictures of hundreds and hundreds of individuals gathered in subway systems and parking garages and bomb shelters. And they do so because they offer a level of safety and security while chaos reigns in the streets above. But I want you to imagine a scenario with me for just a moment. Imagine that in a miraculous turn of events, Ukraine is actually able to stave off the Russian invasion. That's what what I've been praying the last 10 days, right? God could do it, right? Imagine that that actually happens. Ukraine is actually able to win this war and the shelling stops and the Russian military performs a full retreat and, and celebrations begin everywhere in the streets. Can you imagine with me the joy of emerging from the subway system back into the light of day? Can you imagine the thrill of returning back to a home above the ground? I mean, think about that joy that would be theirs. And here's my point in all of this. The law is strikingly similar to a bomb shelter. It is a wonderful thing to have for a very specific allotted amount of time, namely when bombs are falling from the sky. But it would be odd, wouldn't it? If days and weeks and months go by and yet the people stayed in the shelters. 
They stayed underground, not because they needed to, but because they wanted to. And wouldn't it be odder still if those in the shelter began to persuade those above ground to come back, come back into the shelters? This is what's happening in Galatia. Paul is saying, you guys, the gospel has come. The Lord Jesus Christ has given himself to deliver us from this present evil age. The war has been won. Freedom has been accomplished. A new age has dawned in the gospel. Christ came not just to restrain sin, but to deal with it decisively. He came not as a temporary solution, but as the solution planned from ages past. Don't you see this, Galatians? When he came, He brought the kingdom with him. The age of the spirit, the age of faith, the age of freedom, the age of salvation for both Jew and Greek. Don't you see this? Don't miss it, Galatians, that it's only here in the gospel that the spiritual forces over this present age have been disarmed. Nothing else deals with this problem. Nothing else crushes, crushes the spiritual force of darkness like the gospel does. And so Paul says, to crawl back into the bomb shelter of the law is to walk away from the gospel. And he says, if you go back down there, just know that you are walking away from the power of the gospel. The law will have no power whatever to rescue you from the demonic influence that you once followed. That's what's happening here. In this way, a return to the law is in fact a return to paganism, a return to slavery. And so Paul says, remember who you are, Christian. Remember that what you need to live is the power of the Spirit through faith and not to trust in the law. And this brings us to our final point. Remember who spoke God's word to you. As I thought about how to characterize verses 12 through 20, Again and again, the Lord brought to mind a verse from 3 John. Here, John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. But here in Galatians chapter 4, we are shown that the opposite is also true. In these verses, we see that Paul has no greater sorrow than to hear that his children are in fact not walking in the truth. And again, this wasn't always the case. Paul recounts here how the Galatians opened up both heart and home to Paul in the past. They had every reason to turn him away, our text tells us. And yet Paul says, you did not scorn or despise me, but instead you received me as an angel of God, as Christ himself. You welcomed me as a divine messenger, as one who really and truly speaks for God. What we should see here is that Paul loved these brothers. And he had been loved 
by them. The letter of Galatians isn't some cold theological treaty, but a rich letter written by a man who is in anguish over the direction of his spiritual children. Just as a loving mother would be in distress to see their son walk away from the faith, so too Paul is in anguish as he watches the Galatians plummet towards the edge of a cliff. He says in verse 16, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Paul says, man, my message hasn't changed. I'm telling you the same thing today that I told you back then. Why then has your reception towards me changed? And in verse 17, he warns them of their newfound friends. He says, these Judaizers, these men who want to make you return to the law, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. Listen, brothers, your new friends aren't who you think they are. Yes, they eagerly seek you out and they, they flatter you, but it's only because they are seeking praise from you. Again and again in the scriptures, one of the key marks of false teachers is that what they're really after is the praise and glory of man. Paul says, brothers, don't be duped by these guys. They are not trying to impart something to you. They want something from you. They are not mainly aimed at your good nor at the glory of God. They are after the fame of their own name. You see that? They want you as notches in their belt, as evidence that they really are influential and important. But oh, what a contrast we find in verse 19. We should do a full stop at verse 19 because of the contrast between Paul and the false teachers that he's just described. Listen to this. Paul says this, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. This is the cry of Paul's heart. This is what he's after in the lives of the Galatians. Not to get something from them, but to impart the most precious gift imaginable to them. The cry of Paul's heart is for Christ to be formed in the Galatians. That their thoughts would look more and more like the thoughts of Jesus Christ. That they would actually put on the mind of Christ. That all they do, they would do with the motivation of Jesus Christ. That their mission would become the mission of Christ and that all of this would be done in reliance upon the power of Christ, which is the Holy Spirit. Paul says, I am in anguish until this happens. I am in agony because it seems like this life of Christ that I once saw in you is beginning to fade. And it's as if at this point, Paul is stepping back and checking for a pulse. 
He's scratching his head and he's wondering if there's any heartbeat at all in these Galatians. Is Christ in them? And into this pain and into this heartbreak, Paul issues a single and surprising command. It's the first imperative command in the whole book of Galatians. And we find it back in verse 12. Paul says, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. He says, brothers, remember me. Become like I am. Remember how I was free from following the Jewish law and become like me. Join, join me, brothers. Join me in this. Turn from this path of insanity that you are on by following my example. And this command to imitate Paul is really a command to imitate one in whom Christ has been formed. We must learn to say again and again together with Paul the words of Galatians 2.20. Like we, we can't say these words too often to ourselves in this Galatians series. You should know them by now. Paul gives almost the mission statement of his life here. I love this. It's glorious. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's saying that's what I want more than anything for you Galatians. I want Christ to be formed in you. I want you to be able to say together with me with the same conviction that I have been crucified with Christ It's him that's living in me now. It's him that's animating and motivating everything that I do, every desire, every decision, every choice put there, not by ourselves, not by an outward influence of the world, but by Christ who lives in me. This is the gospel, my friends, that we would be transformed by Jesus Christ living in us, forgiven of all of our sins as he works powerfully within us. And as we prepare to move to the table, I want to leave you with a single question here this morning. And it's this. Is Christ being formed in you today? Is Christ being formed in you? I'm not asking if he was being formed in you five years ago or six months ago, I'm asking you today, is Christ being formed in you? John Piper put it this way. For some of you, these are the very days in which for the first time, the beauty of the gospel of grace is beginning to shine on the horizon of your soul. But others of you look back months or years or decades to a golden era of faith when Christ was powerfully taking shape in your life. But something has changed. There has been a kind of settling into the world and the vibrant sense of being an alien and an exile in the world has faded and the powerful shaping forces in your life are not coming from Christ within, but from the world without. And so I ask again, brothers and sisters, 
is Christ being formed in you? Is his influence in your life greater than any other influence? Are you putting on the mind of Christ? Are your thoughts day by day becoming more like the thoughts of Jesus Christ? Are you delighting in the things that Jesus delights in? Are you dealing with anxiety like Christ would have dealt with anxiety during his time on earth? What about your speech? When you speak, does it sound like the words of your Savior, Jesus Christ? Does it resemble even remotely the words of Jesus? What about what what drives you? Does your motivation resemble the motivation of Christ? Does your mission resemble the mission of Christ? And here's the last and probably the most important question of all. Are you relying on the power of Christ to make that whole list that I just read possible? Are you daily waking up in the morning and looking away from yourself and saying, there's no power for transformation here. I've got to look to Jesus Christ. I've got to look to the spirit that my God so richly provides for those who trust in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, the deepest prayer of our hearts this morning is that Christ would be formed in us this week. That you would teach us by your Holy Spirit to look away from ourselves, to look away from the hope that we're so tempted to put in this world and instead to lean upon and indeed throw ourselves upon the mercy seat of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, would you help us this week to become more like Christ? Would you help us to know that Christ being formed in us is much more than just imitating Jesus? Because Christ being formed in us is a miracle that Christ is doing, not us. Would you do that in us this week? Would we rely wholly upon you and upon your Holy Spirit to make this happen? Lord, we love you. We ask all these things in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. So now as we come to the table together, we remember that there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. We remember that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We remember that at the cross, we find full atonement because of his death for our sin. So we celebrate the Lord's Supper here together. All who believe in the Lord Jesus, who have trusted in him for salvation, you're welcome to participate. We're going to serve the bread first, and as it comes by, just hold on to it until the end, and we'll take it together. I'll invite the pastors and the deacons forward. Jesus tells us in John 6 that his body is the true bread. Let us serve you.